From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 99. I'm excited for this podcast because we have a longtime CSP athlete who's got a great story to tell. Um, He went through a pretty significant injury during his minor league career. He had a really remarkable major league debut, and he's also a new author, so someone who has a lot of perspective across a number of different um, aspects of the sport, um, from the college recruiting process to being drafted multiple times by multiple organizations and playing at several different schools. So I think he's got a lot of wisdom to share, um, you know, and certainly has uh, spoken a little bit to you know, how he's evolved as a pitcher and, and what he's worked hard at to become what he is today. So really good show coming up, and I think you'll like it. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's a zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously, our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest is a right-handed pitcher who grew up in California and was drafted in the 24th round of the 2010 MLB draft by the Tampa Bay Rays. He decided not to sign, instead attending the University of Arizona, and as you'll learn in this interview, he attended four separate colleges in four years. He was drafted by the Reds in the 38th round, Cubs in the 14th round, and Cardinals in the 9th round, ultimately signing with the Cardinals in 2014. He worked his way through the minor leagues, and on June 11, 2018, he was called up to the big leagues. In his MLB debut, he threw seven no-hit innings against the Reds. At the time of this recording, he's made 46 MLB appearances, including 22 starts, and struck out 143 hitters and one. 135 innings. Please welcome to the show, Daniel Ponce de Leon. Daniel, thanks so much for joining me and welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me on here. No worries at all. So I've, I've known your story uh, from afar for quite some time, like the, the highs and the lows. Um, but I think it'd be cool maybe to, to start from the beginning so that our, 
our listeners have a little bit of a, a better insight as to where you started from. So let's talk about you as a high school pitcher. Um, you know, you were, you were dropped out of high school um, as a, a commit to the University of Arizona. So there was definitely some talent there. But if you had to look back and, you know, and give the scouting report on, on you know, on Daniel as a high school pitcher, uh, what would you say? I would say that um, he was a careless guy who was raw. Uh, you know, I was I was always in love with football. Um, that uh, my passion was there, and then you know, whenever baseball rolled around, I just played, mm-hmm. and uh, never really thought I was great until you know scouts started coming to the games, and you know, coach kept putting me in the big games to pitch, and I was like, why am I doing that? <laughs> and uh, you know, I go out there and I just try to throw hard and throw everything as hard as I can, really at home plate, and um, you know, ended up working out pretty well. But I was raw, didn't know what a two-seam was, didn't think pitchers actually threw change-ups, um, didn't really know too much about baseball, to be honest. Interesting. So w- when you say raw, was was it a, a scenario of like you were a, a very like good athlete who just happened to have a baseball in his hand? Or was it just raw in the sense that you know you had, you had refined the baseball like skill aspect, of, but no one had taught you how to hold grips and things like that? How would you was – it, was it baseball specific, I guess, or was it mentality? Probably both. Uh, you know, my I threw a four seam, but in my head I called it a sinker because I would just throw it on the – I would have my fingers on the side and hopefully it sank. And then the curveball I threw was pretty much a two seam grip, and I would throw it like a football. That's how my dad taught me. <laughs> you know, that, those were the cues. Uh, hey, it worked, right? It got, you, it got you drafted. You were headed to a Division One program. You know, but I guess my curious question first and foremost, why was college the path for you that was – was, was it abundantly clear? Was it a hard decision for you? It was a tough decision. Um, you know, n- n- no one in my family has any professional experience in sports. Um, you know, we had a scout draft me, and uh, he was very uh, welcoming, good person. And um, we just didn't know. We, 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 we jumped through a lot of hoops with them, too. But um, my visit to University of Arizona, we were just blown away. You know, the coach told us everything we needed to hear. And, uh, I mean, the facility was awesome. This campus was awesome. And I was – I, I, I didn't mind school. I, I like going to school, so I thought that was a good route for us. I like it. Um, so you get to the University of Arizona, and I think it was three innings that you pitched there, correct? And it, it led to, uh, you know, you bouncing around a fair amount. So tell the story of maybe those circumstances – um, you know, also maybe the lessons that you learned all the way from, you know, how you wound up with the Cardinals years later. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit. We got but, all the um, time in the world. <laughs> well, Arizona was a tough spot for me. Um, you know, only got three innings of work and somehow burned my, uh, freshman year. So going into the off season, the head coach tell, calls me in the office. We had the end of year meeting and he tells me, Hey, we're looking at you to be our Sunday starter next year. And uh, we like this and this about you, that. So then I'm, I'm like confused now, like what just happened? And then halfway through the summer, I get the call from the Arizona coach saying, we're not renewing your scholarship. So uh, I had to move on. Mm-hmm. And um, the next day, I got tons of calls from D2s, D3s, uh, junior colleges. And um, I ended up settling on a junior college near my house called Cypress uh junior college and uh it's about 15 20 minutes from my house so i was able to live at home which was nice and um i was able to pitch there and my pitching coach there taught me the cutter that i still throw to this day and um it was a good experience for me i was able to be on starts i don't uh, i started every start 
didn't miss any and uh, pitch well. And um, that's where University of Houston found me. And uh, we were still comfortable going back to school. So I went to University of Houston. They they cleaned house pretty much. So they had all their weekend spots open. I ended up winning the Friday night guy and um, pitched the whole year there. Ended up getting drafted by the Cubs that year. And that was when I finally decided it's it's time to be a professional. So then I go get the physical from the Cubs in Mesa, Arizona. End up failing a physical on my ulnar nerve, which I had no issues prior. It was just out of the blue once again. And so I go to return back to Houston. But then the NCAA deems me as a professional because I agreed to terms with the scout from the Cubs. So now I lost my amateur status. <laughs> so... <laughs> So last but not least, I end up at um, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And uh, the reason why I went there is because my pitching coach at Houston coached the pitching coach at Embry-Riddle. So that was that connection. And I thought if I was going to go to any school, I might as well go to a good NEIA school. They were ranked pre preseason ranked three in the nation. So I thought that would be a good good place to go. And it was. Um, that that pitching coach there put me on a pretty good routine um, and kind of – some of those things that he put in me are still stuck in me to this day as well. And uh, I pitched real well there, and I got drafted by the Cardinals. Nice. All right, so the, the Cardinals situation rolls around. And I think we met up the first time. It was in the fall of 2015, maybe after your first full season for the Cardinals. You know, what was the biggest adjustment for you going to pro ball? Um, obviously, you had been in you know four different college landscapes you know, over the course of those four years. And then you jump into – you know, your first year of pro ball and, and pro ball, let's be honest, it's not really about continuity because you jump level to level. I guess as you're going through all of these like different, um, you know, dynamics and you, you know, effectively by the time I met you, it was probably six places, actually seven places in seven years when you take senior in high school all the way through. Yeah. At, at what point do you realize like, hey, I've got to be my own best coach. I've got to figure out what works for me and all that. Did it, did it take some time to figure that out? Um, my very first professional offseason – um, you know, I kind of stepped back and looked at everything and, um, I ended up pitching well my first professional season, but I just, I look, you look at the guys in the big leagues, they're throwing hard stuff. And I was 88, 92 guy. And, uh, I had pitches, but I just wasn't elite. So in my head, I was like, you know, I just got to get stronger. So I started YouTubing videos and, um, pretty much taught myself how to lift via YouTube. Cause I wasn't a huge lifter. I just kind of got it done. But then that's when I really invested in it, and that's when I saw a huge jump in my uh, velo. Interesting. And so, so let's talk about maybe the progression of you over the course of, um, you know, the the years in minor league baseball. Like certainly, you talked about obviously getting getting bigger, stronger, and all that. But there were also some pitch mitch, you know, changes. You know, you mentioned the cutter is kind of the same thing it is today. Um, but there was also a period as you worked your way through minor league baseball where you. You banged the two-seamer and, and went to just four-seamer. So what, what was the rationale for the change? And and then maybe as a you know question, you know, 1A on that, what are the biggest adjustments and mental cues you had to have for yourself to make that change? Um, yeah, I've, I've, ever since I left high school, I just threw the two-seam the whole time. That was my only fastball. I never threw any four-seam since. And, um, you know, 2017 – or 18 rolls around and um and uh they, they've always told me i was a high spin guys high spin guys uh throw four seamers and that was kind of when the spin uh hype has started getting bigger so um you know there was one spring training game and i was like you know what i'll i'll, I'll throw one inning for you guys with this four seam 
just to just to like kind of like rub it in the coach's face like i don't really need it and then <laughs> so i go out there and i get the four seam and i'm blowing doors away and i'm like wow this is this is actually something here <laughs> and um so then i ended up sticking with it and it you know what i mean now that's my only fastball i throw and i can't really throw a two seam anymore for some reason but um the mental cue was i think it helped me stay in line better because in the two seam in my head i think i started cross firing a little more i've been trying to wrap it i guess or sink it more by getting on the side and stepping across my body and it just threw a lot of things off mm-hmm. and it's still that some of that stuff is still stuck in me and it's still working out working it out of me but um the four seam the mental cue was pretty much just drive it through the catcher and with that cue it it, it gave it lift without without me trying to give it lift i guess mm-hmm. and i'm also curious because you, you've always had the curveball and you've even thrown it more you know in recent years you know working out of the pen some and all that were you a guy that were you always able to manipulate the baseball? Like we've, we've talked with like Adam Ottavino and Mike Soroka and and those guys talk about like, you know, just like almost playing games with like manipulating the ball and creating spin, you know, in their early teenage years. Was that something you always had? Was it something that you went through multiple iterations of it, especially as the balls change from high school to college and college to pro? Yeah, it's definitely a roller coaster. Um, You know, back in, back in high school, I was able to like shape, different things unintentionally i didn't know what i was doing but i was doing it and um and uh you know as you step up a level the seams go down so then there's that learning curve then you get used to it and then you go up another level and the balls change change and then then finally you get to the big leagues and now it's now it's a battle you're trying to spin a cue ball really yeah i've heard that you know over and over from guys is that adjustment minorly to the big leagues is one of the, the the most pronounced changes they see um you know, you were off to a really impressive start in 2017, and, and, and unfortunately, you were hit by a, by a line drive. And I think it was something that was, you know, the casual baseball fan heard about it and, and probably saw the video, um, but not many people understood just how serious it was. And being honest, like I, you know, we were working together at the time, and, you know, I heard about it. It was, it was terrible, but I didn't, I didn't realize how dire the condition was. So maybe tell us the story and, and talk about, like, what, what people from afar didn't really know about that. Well, okay, uh, 2017, May 9th, um, pitching against the Iowa Cubs in AAA and uh, day game, kids' day. And uh, second inning rolls around. I'm throwing two seams at the time. And um, I'm facing a left-handed hitter, Victor Carantini, who's a pretty good bat-to-ball guy, you know. He could he could hit pretty good. And uh, catch calls two seam down away. And I start the two seam middle. And it didn't break down and away. stayed in the middle. Caratini drove right back up the middle and struck me in the temple and um, probably knocked me out for a few seconds. But after that, I came to the trainer ran out and I was able to answer, you know, the simple questions they asked me, like, what's my name? What's my birthday? How old am I? What year is it? And I was able to answer all these questions. But, um, you know, the way I was answering it, I don't think the trainer liked. Mm-hmm. So he ended up calling the stretcher up with me in the put him in the ambulance and they brought me into the hospital and the whole time I'm thinking like, why are we doing all this? You know, it didn't seem too bad. I played football and got, you know, rung up a bit and, uh, seemed something similar until I was in the ambulance and, uh, stuff started getting a bit woozy for me, mm-hmm. like, uh, like spinning and stuff and, uh, started feeling real sick. And then that's when I finally thought, you know, this is probably pretty bad and, uh, got one prayer off and then a few memories left. And, um, next thing you know i'm laying in bed talking to my dad and um i come to find out that i had a uh epidural hematoma which is a bleed between the brain and the skull 
and uh, I could have died. Mm-hmm. So it was just a matter of time until the swelling kind of kicked in and got things pronounced worse. Yeah, pretty much. Once the brain started shifting over and um, pressing against the skull, that's when things got real bad. And they had to pretty much take off the right side of my skull and uh, relieve pressure and stop the bleeding. And once that was uh, relieved a bit, they were able to replace my skull back on with some titanium plates and hold it back on. And the worry was that if it re-swelled again, then they would have to remove my skull and I would have a mesh lining in as my skull instead of my skull, Eesh. which would be a very bad thing. Cause then I would have, you know, a disability. Absolutely. Now talk, talk timelines. Like you're obviously, you know, those are acute surgeries, but what was the, um, the period of time you were on the shelf in the hospital and, you know, rehabbing and all that. Um, in the hospital, I was in ICU for a little over two weeks. And then I went into inpatient room for like two or three days and they sent me through a blast of tests and, you know, difference between like physical and mental things and showering on my own. And um, I was able to pass all those. And finally, around the three week mark, I was able to fly home to Florida. And then so to resume any physical activity, my brain swelling would have to go down. Mm-hmm. And to rehab a brain, you can't really do anything. Yeah. Like like you would do an arm, leg, whatever. So mm-hmm. um, all you could do is sit there. So what I did was, you know, kind of research and see you know, what can I do to help speed up this process? And um, when I got out from it was really, if if you could have a healthy body where it doesn't really need to heal anywhere else, we could focus healing on the brain. So I cleaned up the diet and everything else. And um, on the three month mark, exactly, uh, I got my scan and was cleared for physical activity with no brain shift. I was back to neutral. Yeah. And I, I, you know, in hindsight, it was a very, I don't want to say it was a normal off season. We progressed a lot slower, but looking back that 17, 18 off season, it, it, we were able to do way more stuff than in hindsight I would have ever expected. Um, so it was, it was a testament to a lot of the changes you made, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, beyond just the physical components, like talk about, you know, the mental side of things, was it a hurdle to get back, you know, onto the mound or, you know, were there other big lessons that you, you took from it? Um, the, the mental part was in those three months, you know, not being able to do anything was a bit tough. You just had to sit there and wait. And, um, so, you know, I had to pick up new things, started reading more, Mm -hmm. um, started doing other things more, walking more, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. But, um, to get back on the mound, was never a problem for me. Uh, I don't know why, but I've always had that belief that I was fine. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you get on the mound, you just got to be in attack mode because if you're not, then that's when you get those liners right back up the middle again. So you got to stay in that attack mode. And uh, so I, I don't think I ever feared getting back on. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a cool story also, you know, months later. So you made your MLB debut in, in 2018, seven no-hit innings in your debut. Um, and it was also the start of a, a very effective rookie year. I'm, I'm curious, you know, maybe – you know, maybe it's perspective for some of this experience, but what allowed you to be successful early on, um, you know, in the big leagues when you first came up? What what made you throw, you know, what allowed you to throw seven no-hit innings in, in, in the first go-round when other guys struggle on an MLB debut and, and walk the house or don't make it out of the first inning? Um, well, I'm a man of faith. So uh, that, you know, I, that whole offseason started from the point of getting injured up till then, you know, I was digging deeper and deeper, reading the Bible daily and praying daily. And 
uh, made sure I knew where I was going to go when I died because I was not real sure when uh, when I got injured. But I was I'm pretty sure now, very sure now. But um, uh, you know, so I get I I pray before the game saying you know give me some peace and focus. And when I got on that mound, that was that was probably one of the most peaceful games and the most focused I ever been on a mound. And you know what allowed you to stick? You know, in the in the big leagues. You know, what I mean, everyone talks about it's it's hard making the big leagues. It's even harder to stay in the big leagues. You know, what adjustments were you finding that you had to make to to be a regular big leaguer in the you know the months that followed? Um, to be in the big leagues, you have to be good at something. And um, what what I figured out was, you know, my fastball was pretty good. So so I used my fastball, and um, you know, I. I force hitters to hit it. And, um, you know, if they start actually showing that they could, they could hit it, then that's when I could start bringing in some other off speed stuff. But, um, I, I try to perfect the fastball, I guess you could say. And, um, I throw it as hard as I can. I like that. And, you know, it's interesting fastball usage across the game is down, but you're still throwing it over 60% of the time as a starter and and over 80% of the time as a reliever. Like what makes you so confident in your fastball in an era you know, where, where secondary stuff isn't playing up? Is it, is it just knowing those numbers of like what hitters do to it and how success rates work? Or is it also maybe knowing that, you know, uh, the way that you uh, position your fastball and your repertoire makes everything else play up, play off a little bit better. Is it a little bit of everything? Um, well, first is like when I get the grip of a baseball, I, I could tell you before the pitch even leaves my hand, if it's going to be good or not, I don't know why it just feels good, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, I, if, if you really think about it, you know, you have the least amount of time to react, uh, against a fastball as opposed to any other off speed, cause it is the fastest pitch coming mm-hmm. towards home. So, um, that, that's another reason why. And um, I wasn't really huge into the metrics, but, you know, the metrics guys came to me and showed me what my fastball was, and they showed it was pretty good. So I thought, you know, if it's that good, maybe I can make it a little bit better. So I started tweaking with different grip, not different grips, different angles of the grip, I guess, and um, different ways of throwing it. But nothing really beats the, the, the idea of just throwing it through the catcher. I like it. Um, a good external focus cue as well. Um, I'm curious, you, you bounce back and forth between starting and relieving. You're relieving a little bit more now, but what are some of the biggest adjustments you've had to make on this front? Um, you know, has it been, you know, changing when you lift or how much you lift? Has it been more on how you manage your bullets pregame and the, and the throwing side of things? What's been the biggest struggle going from starting to relieving, if at all? Yeah, there's a, there was a bit of learning and still is. Um, definitely lifts. Um, you know, it's, it turned from focused upper and lower and, and a recovery lifts to kind of total body lifts. And, um, I, I was never afraid to lift before throwing anyways. I actually enjoy lifting before I throw, it gets the body nice and warmed up. So mm-hmm. I was okay with that. But, um, also the, the, the hard part for me was the throwing. I, I love throwing, but as a reliever, if you if you throw a ton before the game and then you go and sit for a long time, then you have to warm back up. You just don't feel as great, so um, you just kind of have to replan the way you throw, as opposed to when you're a starter. You could, you know, after you pitch, you have that you have four days between to really get some good throwing in before your next start. I like that, and you know, maybe let's talk about the book as well. So it's it's called One Line Drive. Um, 
and obviously it's impacted by your, your experience of, of being hit by the line drive, but what, what led you to write it? And, and then also what audience do you think it, it benefits the most? Well, at first, uh, my, my agent, Brian Greeper, he, um, he, he brought the idea to me about writing a book and I kind of shunned it off and, um, you know, he kind of kept subtly bringing it up and, uh, you know, I didn't really think about it too much, but then, um, it was mainly the fans reaching out um, that, that they said how much they impact they've been impacted and even you know people close to me said how much they've been impacted. I'm like, well, if that if the people are actually impacted by this and and this is something I could talk and write about and I could bring God into this and introduce people to God or bring them closer to God or affect someone's life to let, help them know who Jesus is, then then I'm all in on this book. So that's that's the reason why. I, I wrote it and, and I've, so I've done this a couple times. Writing books is not easy. I'm curious, were you a natural for it or was it something that you struggled with? I know you had a co-author that, that helped along with it, but th- this is not easy to, to drop these things up. I have a lot of respect for you for doing this. I had a lot of respect <laughs> for you for, for everything you've done, but you know, particularly with two young kids at home and all that. Was it hard? Um, it, it, it was somewhat hard, especially talking about yourself and then, um, you know, you even got to talk about the bad things about yourself to really show who who you are, and um, so it was a little bit hard. But um, the people I worked with are amazing. You know, Tom Zenner, the guy who co-wrote the book, he he did hours of interviewing many different people, and um, he put together a good piece. And I was able to review it, and all the all the facts are true, which which is great. Um, and also the the group that we have that helped edit, mm-hmm. um, you know, Brian Greeper and um, Jeff and Jane, Jan, um, they they were really good at um, at this, and they they actually handled a, a lot of the work, and mm-hmm. they kept me out of some of the the nuances nuances. So um, um, that 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 group together was was a powerhouse. That's awesome, and it's also available as an audiobook. So I, I crush a lot of my reading these days. So you can go to <laughs> audible.com and get it, but onelinedrive.com is the website. And then it's also, um, you know, available and Amazon or wherever books are sold elsewhere. Um, so as we get to the end here, we got to do a lightning round. That's how we always wrap things up. So we're going to start with what would your advice to a teenage Daniel Ponce de Leon be? Oh man. Um, I think take lifting more seriously, but that's tough because you can lift wrong, you know? Yep. So, um, I like that. That's a good qualifying recommendation to America's youth. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, favorite teammate of all time. Oh, that's a good one too. Um, man. Um, it can be any level and you can pick more than one if you want to. A lot of guys do. I don't know. It'd be so cliche if I said Adam Wainwright, right? I I mean he's a, I've, everything I've heard about Adam is is phenomenal. So that's he's a great guy. He yeah. still could pitch like crazy. And he's an old man, you know. <laughs> that's Look. a good good answer. All right. So on that building on that, um, who are your favorite pitchers to watch in the game right now? Um, one is Adam Rain- Wainwright right now because he is at, you know at older age and he's out there pitching. You know he's throwing four different pitches. He just taught himself a changeup within the last year and a half and. He's out there throwing it, and he's getting guys out, and um, it's amazing. But um, if we're going to, like, elite stuff, um, Trevor Bauer, he's the, – the pitches he throws are absurd. 
You know, I don't know how he gets balls to move like that. <laughs> um, so another one interesting. Your wife, Jen, is a weight room rock star. She's a regular CSP athlete during training <laughs> each year. And she's rounded up a lot of the Cardinals, girlfriends and wives. Um, how important is it to have a support system like that? Like I said, you have two young kids at home and and uh, and she's crushing and supporting you on on training, nutrition, all that stuff. What what is what has she meant to your development? Oh, she is. She's 80% of my de- development. She, um, so I'm not a big cooker, mm-hmm. um, but she, she enjoys cooking and she makes some good food. So that's like the very first step. Um, also, like anytime I need a partner to help me do anything, especially in, you know, in your list where you mm-hmm. have programmed, you know, uh, manual resistance stuff. I've heard do I ever watch the videos and then do them with me. I'm telling you, this is my coach. I was really, I was teeing it up for you. I wanted to give you a chance to thank your wife publicly. So, um, Jen, you're a rock star. We all think the world of you. Um, and then last question, what's the next step for you to take in your development? What do you feel like, um, you want to do better to, you know, to be a big leaguer for, for many, many years to come? Uh, just be consistent, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you go out there and it just lights out. Like, I, I feel like no one could ever hit me. You know, mm-hmm. I step on the mound. No one could touch my whatever I'm throwing out there. And then I'll go out the next day and like, oh, where's home plate? <laughs> nice. Well, that's, I mean, that's a, a an admirable goal for everybody. Um, hey, this was, this is outstanding. Really would encourage everybody to, to check out the book for sure. Um, folks can find you on Twitter. It's at underscore P-O-N-C-E 14. Um, but again, books, uh, but it's an outstanding read with lots of really important messages. Um, thank you very much for taking the time, man. And, and best of luck the rest of the way. We'll be cheering for you. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me on here. It was an honor. You got it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.